Welcome to the next message from Encounter Church. For more information about our church, visit us online at EncounterPGH.com. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the message. How's everyone doing today? Fantastic. See, that's what I expect every week from you, okay? So that's just saying it out there now. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jared. I am the lead pastor here at Encounter Church, and I'm so glad that each one of you decided to join us today. Uh, Today is May 1st, and that is just incredible to me that we are just rapidly moving through the year. Um, I hope the weather starts to warm up pretty soon because I keep trying to have these campfires in my backyard, and they're getting, like, chilled out, so I need it to warm up a little bit. Uh, Today we are beginning our Heroes and Villains message series. I'm really excited about this. Uh, Last fall, we began the series called Heroes. It was just Heroes, and we had a couple individuals from the Bible. What we did was we examined some stories from the Bible of individuals who are heroes of the faith, and we thought it was so popular that we would bring it back, but this time we're not going to just do Heroes. We're actually also going to talk about some villains. There are people in the Bible that uh, give us examples of how to not live life the way it should be lived. And so what we want to get across as we go through this series is to understand that the stories in the Bible, they're not just stories. And the people in the Bible, the characters in those stories, they're not just characters. In fact, we can see each one of ourselves in those stories. And so what, what I want to challenge you to do as we read through these passages of Scripture, as we examine different individuals uh, from stories throughout Scripture, what I want to challenge you to do is see yourself in these stories. How would you respond in a situation like some of these individuals respond to? How would you feel if you were talked to in a certain way? And so as we explore these different characters in the Bible, Let's put ourselves in it. And that's what I love about the Bible. A lot of people, you know, read the Bible or they would say, you know, I'm not sure I understand it. And part of it is, I think, because they read it like it's a textbook instead of reading it as the story of humanity. And that's really what it is. God wrote this picture of who he is to us, but it also helps us to understand who we are to God. Now, how many of you ever, have ever heard of uh, some guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Let me see your hand if you've ever heard of them. Okay, a whole bunch of you have, and this is who we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are three guys who uh, were Jewish guys who were from Israel who got taken captive when Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king had, uh, had, had from Babylon, had come to Jerusalem and sieged the entire nation and basically won the war and then took them into captivity. Okay, So this is a, um, a whole bunch of the Old Testament is from this time period. It's called the exile. Okay, So what was going on was that Nebuchadnezzar came to Israel with his armies, sieged the nation, sieged the city, and then when he did, he took a whole bunch of people captive. So we're going to read this story today, and then we're going to kind of ask our question, what might God say to us through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? So we're going to turn to Daniel chapter 1. If you have your Bibles with you, pull them out, uh, or if you have a tablet or a smartphone, uh, the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app, I encourage you to download that, and the verses will also be on the screen. It's going to be a lot of scripture up front today, and then we're going to kind of just talk about it. So Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, this is what we see right here. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, so he was one of the kings in, in Jerusalem, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia, which is in the area of like Iraq and Iran, and placed them in the treasure house of his God. 
Verse 3, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family, okay, so this is important, and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. So what we're seeing here is Nebuchadnezzar said, I got all of these guys from the nation, and I want to bring them here, and I want to now train them in my ways. This is, very, this is something that happened when, when, when people were brought from captivity. They would take some of their smartest, their best, and their brightest, and they would bring them into the royal kingdom and train them in their way so they would forget their history. They would forget who they were. They would forget everything that was important to them, and that's how they transferred the Babylonian culture down into, into whoever was being captured. Okay? So it wasn't just Israel. He had an enormous, uh, enormous empire, and we'll, we'll see a map of that in a little bit. And this is what he told them. Bring them in and train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. And they were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Now skip down to verse 6. So Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them. So not only were they training them, they even gave them new names, which meant new identities, with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. Now here's the interesting thing as I was doing study this week, is that their names in Hebrew all reflected who God was in their life. They were names like glory to God. They were names of, of God saves. There were all of these names that were in Hebrew were glorifying of who God was. But the Babylonian names were actually representative of Babylonian gods. So do you see, do you see the symbolism of what's happening here? Is that they were held captive. They were exiled from their nation. And they were brought into training, almost like a brainwashing kind of a, of a process to change them into new individuals. And they were even given new names. Now down to verse 18. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all of the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. These guys had the, had the favor of God on their life. And what it's telling us is that they became part of the king's court. And they actually became so... So they were, they were, God gave them wisdom. The Bible says that they were actually given favor and wisdom that everything that they were taught, they were, they were learning it and, and they, were, they were internalizing it so well that they actually stood out from among the native magicians and sorcerers and wise men within the nation. And so what was happening is that God put them in the royal service, but then because they were so good at what they did, they were actually given positions of leadership and promoted to administrative leadership. Now, I want to show you this map here to understand, because this is what it's saying, is that they were promoted to administrative leadership over the province of Babylon. Now, let's look at this map. This is huge. This is Babylon right here, above where it says Babylonian Empire. This is Iran. This is Iraq, Syria. This is where they were taken from, Israel. Now, the area that they were given leadership over because they were so wise was all of this area sort of surrounding the city of Babylon. That's a big area. And to be given to a bunch of little Jewish guys who weren't even Babylonian in the first place. So not only were they taken from their homes, not only were they recognized as being, as being sharp individuals and we're going to train them and use them for our own good, not only were they given new names to signify their new identities, God took them and gave them his blessing and favor even in the middle of this place. And, and even though Nebuchadnezzar and, and the Babylonian Empire was trying to use them for their own, their own 
uh, plans, God has other ideas for them. Now, we're going to pick up our story in Daniel chapter 3, but I want you to understand that actually 19 years take place between where we just stopped and where we're going to pick up. So between chapter 1 and chapter 3, 19 years pass. And during this time, Nebuchadnezzar is expanding this empire. So what the Bible tells us, and it actually gives us a date. So how do we know that? It gives us a date, and it says that King Nebuchadnezzar had come back from certain wars, and it happened during a certain time period. And it says he came back from the Syrian wars, and he was coming back from all of these locations and had expanded his empire, and now he's celebrating. He's so excited because he's like, you know what? I have arrived. Nebuchadnezzar felt like I have created everything I wanted to, and this is where we pick up Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 30. King Nebuchadnezzar decided he wanted to make a gold statue, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officials, to the governors, to the advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, pretty much everybody who was anybody in Babylon, and all of the officials to come to the dedication of this statue that he had set up. Now this statue was not a statue, most likely not a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Most likely what it was is it was a statue of the, of the god Bel, who was their, their great Babylonian god. And essentially, this is important to understand, that in ancient times like this, when a king would go to war in another nation, he considered himself to be going to war against the gods of those nations. So when Nebuchadnezzar went to Israel and captured the Jewish people, he considered that he beat God. And so when he brings them back and he sets up a statue of his own God, what he's doing is he's saying, my God beat your God, and you need to bow down to mine. That was the mentality of this, okay? Let's pick it up here. So all of these officials came, and they stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn or the flute or the zither, I've never no idea what a zither is, the lyre, the harp, pipes, and other musical instruments. I get it, like every possible band item we have over here. Bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because the king who went to war on behalf of his God and warred against others, the king was the representative of God, and every one of these kings thought that they were God. Caesar was the same in Rome, okay? So Nebuchadnezzar, even though he wasn't having a statue of himself, he considered himself to be Bel incarnate on earth, okay? So he says, you must now bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. And anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or their nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 8. But some of the astrologers, those wise men we were talking about earlier, went to the king and informed on the Jews. Now, this is a little, little bit of information here. This word informed, actually, in Aramaic, where this was written primarily in Aramaic, the word, the phrase there is to rend the flesh or the limbs off of an individual. That's what the word for informed means here. So in other words, think of it this way. These men were so jealous. They were so jealous of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who God had given favor, right? We already saw that. The Bible literally says that they were given position of authority because God had put favor on them to learn. And so because they had basically shamed all of the local native guys, they were so jealous of them, they were looking for any chance. And this word informed here, what it means 
is, is that they, it's kind of like this idea of they were so desiring to devour these men that they would do anything. They were trying to rip them apart with their words, okay? That's what this means. So they went and informed the Jews, and they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they heard the sound of the etc. and other musical instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. Just reminding you, Nebi. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, who thinks he's a god, flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. And then when they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue that I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you heard the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? So what do they say? They replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. I love that little snarky comment there. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. I mean, it's interesting that they put that there. That he, was, he was so consumed with his own self-identity in this moment that when he heard something that he didn't want to hear, these people, he thought he betrayed that they betrayed him. For the last 20 years, you guys have served me in my provinces. And now you're not going to do what I've asked you to do on the moment that I return for my greatest of victories. He's so consumed with what he had done with himself that his face contorts with rage. And he commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Some people actually say that, that, was, that it was seven times hotter than it had ever been, that this was the record heat that had ever been taken place inside of this furnace. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. But this is interesting. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, their turbans, their robes, and their other garments. And because the king, in his anger, had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So in his own rage, he began to lose control of what was happening here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. Well, it must be the end for our friends. But suddenly... Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't, did, wait a minute, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the fire? Uh, yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Well, look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, not bound any longer, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth one looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted to them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Oh, interesting now how he has sort of changed his tune, right? Come out, come here. 
So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officials, the officers, the officials, the governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not even touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make this decree. This is amazing to me. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against their God, they will be torn from limb to limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. This is incredible. This man who thought he was a God just got dwarfed at the name of our God. This is incredible to me. Verse 30, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. Well, man, what an incredible story. I, I mean, it was a lot of scripture, so I appreciate your patience in that. But I, that story is, is interesting to me. It's full of all sorts of imagery. And I, and I think about these three guys who, you know, I have to say their name over and over and over again, and it's like tongue twisters. But they're heroes of our faith, not because they did something crazy or something special, but I think I, think I wonder to myself, what would I do? What would I do in a circumstance like that where if I, was, if I knew that I had to do something that was right or that I believed was right and there was going to be a great or significant penalty to me, how would I react to that situation? How would you react to that situation? Would you have the guts to stand up in the face of your king or your president or a police officer and, and say this is not right no matter what the cost would be? I don't know. I don't know what I would do. I was trying to think this week about it, and the closest that I could come to an example of this was when I was a teenager, I was heading to a Bible study, and there was, I used to live in Silver Spring, Maryland, and to get to this particular uh, leader's house, the the Bible study leader's house, I had to go down Cherry Hill Road, which uh, at the top of it was a shopping center, and when you come down, it's a pretty large sort of slanting hill that just goes for what felt like a mile or so. And so it was so easy to just, you know, pick up speed as you just went down the hill without even thinking about it. I mean, every one of us know what we're talking about. You just kind of, you start going way over the speed limit just naturally, right? Well, this place was notorious for speed traps. And wouldn't you know it, I passed by a police officer and I'm like, oh my gosh, I look at the, at the speedometer and I notice I'm going way over the speed limit. Not necessarily intentionally, but I was also a teenager who happens to usually drive faster than you should. So I see the police officer, and I don't see him come after me like, whew, man, I think I'm good. Oh, it was a speed trap. So I'm looking down the road, and then lo and behold, here comes a police officer down further down the road, pulls out in the middle of the street with his lights flashing, and he pulls me over, and I get a speeding ticket. I was so frustrated in that moment because no one wants to get a speeding ticket. And you know that you deserve it because I was going over the speed limit, but I'm angry at the police officers because I felt like they were just being cheap, you know, because they're doing speed traps and things like that. But so I went to court because I wanted to try. So someone had told me, I said, Jared, you know, if you go to the court, half the time the police officers don't even show up, right? Half the times the the officers don't show up and all you got to do is plead not guilty. And then because there's no police officer there to tell me, uh, that, you know, I was wrong, then you'll get off for it. So I'm sitting there at court, and I get up, and I, I go to that location, and I get in there, and lo and behold, the police officer does not show up for my speeding ticket uh, court hearing. 
And there was a whole bunch of individuals who were there that day. And one after another, the judge has them get up and they come over and they, how do you plead? Not guilty, case dismissed. Boop. Not guilty, case dismissed. Not guilty, case dismissed. This happened for 10, 15 minutes. Everyone was having a party because they thought that they were going to be able to get off, right? And so I'm sitting there getting ready to get up and do my spiel so I can get out of there and go about my business. And I felt the Lord say to me, Jared, are you going to lie? Are you going to lie? Because you knew you were speeding that day. And even though the police officer's not here, it doesn't change the fact that you didn't do something right. So you are literally about to get up in front of a microphone and a judge and tell him that you didn't do the thing that you knew you did. I felt so convicted in that moment, and I was kind of mad at God, too, because I was like, but, but Lord, I, I don't, I'm a teenager. I don't have this kind of money to pay for this speeding ticket and the points and all this stuff. And in that moment, I thought, felt like God said to me, but, but you, you're the one who did the wrong thing, and how can you serve me and, and just blatantly do something, like lie to somebody like that? And I just was so convicted in that moment. And so I stood up and the, police, or the, the judge said, how do you plead, son? And I, and I said, guilty. And the whole room, you would, have thought, you would have thought that I just, I don't know, I did something insane, which to them I guess I did. And, and, the, and the judge said, excuse me? And I said, I said, I said sir, I, said, I, I came here to, to tell you not guilty in hopes that the police officer wouldn't be here, and he wasn't. And I saw all these people do this. I said, I just can't. I, I, I can't lie. I I, I, I sped, and I, I wish I hadn't, but I, but I did. And the judge in that moment looked at me and said, I'm, I'm shocked. I mean, he, he was just so surprised that anyone, let alone a teenager, would, would be honest in front of him. And he said, you know what? I, I, I applaud you for that. That's integrity is what he said. And what he ended up doing is he reduced my ticket all the way down to 10 bucks and r- erased the points. And so I got out of there with essentially like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I went through this fire and came out with no smell of smoke on me. There was, there was literally, I was just 10 bucks lighter. That was it. And I, I think about that situation. I think about, I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And even though my situation is not nearly the same in the sense of the, the gravity of the situation, the worst that would have happened is I would have had to pay $150 and had maybe two or three points on my license. And, and that would have been a pain, but I would have been okay. But I think about that situation of doing the right thing, being convicted of something that I knew was right, and standing up for it, and watching God rescue me in that space. And then I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how they did it in a face of something that was even tougher. And I've, I've thought of a couple things that I, I think some things that I've learned that I'd just like to share with you quickly before we finish out today. And the first one is this, is that just because something is right doesn't mean it's easy. And that's important to understand, that just because things are right doesn't mean it's easy. You're going to come across various situations in your life where whether you're at work or whether you're at home or you're at school and the situation that you're facing is difficult, someone is going to say, hey, come on, don't worry about it. No one's going to know. Maybe it's on a test. You could, you could cheat on a test or take someone else's notes. Or maybe at work you found a shortcut through a system that you know, no one's going to know and this line of code here isn't going to matter or whatever it might be for you. Or maybe in your, in your marriage or your relationship, it's looking at something online or talking to somebody or, or uh, you know, with your kids. It's, my kids are never going to know I'm stealing their Halloween candy. What's the big deal? I, I don't know. Like, whatever it might be, there are going to be situations in your life and in my life where, 
when you are confronted with the reality of you know that this thing is not right. And you're going to have to make a choice whether or not you're going to do it or not. And if you do the right thing, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Because I think oftentimes that's what we feel like, is we feel like as Christians, that this is now because I'm a Christian, everything I do is going to just be simple. I've got God on my, on my back. He's got me, you know, he's walking in life with me, that everything's going to just crumble under his name. And, that's, and a lot of stuff does. But at the same time, sometimes he wants to see that we're going to stand up to make a scene, to show somebody that we are against the the. The, the scenarios that we're around. No one is ever going to know that we're serving a God who stands for something that is right if we don't say no to something that's wrong. And it's important for us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would never have been able to tell Nebuchadnezzar that God was greater than his own God if they hadn't said, no, we will not serve your God. If they had just kind of gone through the motions, if they had sort of bowed down just enough, like anything, just to stay under the radar, God wouldn't have gotten the glory, and this story wouldn't be in the Bible. Just because something is right doesn't mean that it will be easy. The second thing I thought about a lesson I've learned is that God can, and he does, rescue us from harm. Sometimes it's situationally. You know, like in that case with my speeding ticket, sometimes I just don't see a way out in your life. Sometimes you're just not sure how you're going to pay that bill. Sometimes it has to do with a consequence of your life. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I'm, just, I'm honest with, with, my, with, with my spouse or, or I'm, I'm honest with the, with the judge and I'm going to end up with a penalty. Sometimes God shows up in situations to reduce our penalty or to get us out of situations. I have seen it happen in our own lives. Sometimes it happens supernaturally. Several of you in this room have even, even heard stories of this. In my case, I was driving to Maryland one day uh, during Snowmageddon that happened several years ago. And I remember coming out on the turnpike in the Somerset Tunnel. You guys know where I'm talking about? Some of you know. And you come out of that tunnel heading, uh, I want to say it's wet, uh, eastbound. And when you come out of the tunnel, there's a big curve. That happens immediately out of it. Now, while I was in the tunnel, it was snowing. I, w- I was stuck behind a tractor trailer, and I thought, oh, well, I'll get around him inside the tunnel. So I crossed the double yellow lines, which is already a problem. So I get into the, to the left lane, and I speed up, not knowing about the, the curve outside of the tunnel. And it has snowed, and up in Somerset, it's the hill, so now everything freezes faster. I come out of the hill, and immediately it turns to the left. And what happens is I lose grip on the road and I start to skid into the other lane and there's that tractor trailer waiting for me. And all I can see is the wheel well of a tractor trailer that I'm about to be crushed underneath in my little Honda Civic at the time. I mean, I'm, I'm literally just, I could, I had my, turn, my, my, my wheel to the left and I could just hear as my tires were scraping against the snow and the ice. And all of a sudden, I don't know what happened. All of a sudden, every, it was like I just hit a hand and it pushed me to the left. And then, and I just came under the shoulder and I stopped and the trailer, tractor trailer goes by and I stopped and I sat there for a second. I said, literally the hand of God reached out of heaven and supernaturally stopped my car from being crushed underneath the wheels of a tractor trailer. I can't explain it any other way. And sometimes God rescues us in supernatural ways. Now, whether it was literally the hand of God or if it was an angel that he sent, I don't know. Or even if he just supernaturally had the wheels catch, I don't care. I am here today because of my God who rescued me from the situation that I had no control over. God does and can rescue today from harm. But there's an interesting piece 
here that I think we need to understand when we think about God rescuing us. And that's the concept of sovereignty, is that sometimes God doesn't step in supernaturally. Sometimes we do have to bear the brunt of a consequence or a situation where sometimes when we stand up and we say, this is not right, and you end up getting made fun of for it, or you end up getting in trouble for something, or you might lose your job, you know? Like, sometimes you do the right thing, and it doesn't work out the way that you want. And there's this concept of sovereignty I want to hit real quick. In verses 17 and 18 in Daniel chapter 3, this is what they said. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God who we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you that we will never serve your gods. These guys understood that God was sovereign. That even though he had the ability to, that sometimes, for whatever reason, he chooses not to act supernaturally on our behalf. For whatever reason. It's important for us to understand this. This idea that when we pray and we ask God to do the, mir- the miraculous in our lives. We talked about this a few weeks ago. About the already but not yet of the kingdom of God. That we live in a fallen world. We live in a place where sin still exists. Where people still do things that God does not design for us or want for us. And so even though we do the right things. Even though we are regenerated in our spirit. Even though we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And he looks at us and he sees love. Love. And, he, and even if we were to have to face the gravest of penalties for our faith and die and, and be healed in the afterlife, the reality is, is that we still have to face situations that don't seem like God is acting. But in his sovereignty, he has chosen for whatever reason to allow that to happen. I mean, think about it. I'm sovereign in my own house, right? I make decisions and my kids don't understand them, but I'm doing them for their best. And even though they don't get it, I have to make the right decision. And that's hard for us to understand because on earth we feel like we are very smart as a species. We've got all sorts of incredible technologies around and all these things. And when it comes to a God in heaven who we serve, we oftentimes have a hard time listening or even understanding that his sovereignty is at play and that he's a father. We just sang a song that said he is a good father. And if we believe that, why does he allow me to be in pain? Sometimes... It's because he knows what's coming down the road for us. And I can't always understand it. I can't even explain it all the time. But his sovereignty is there. And I love that picture from these three men. That even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, I'm still doing what is right. The last thing I want to hit, it's kind of a deeply packed theological concept that we're not going to have a lot of time to talk about. But I just want to hit this, is that what happened in the furnace is an illustration of Christ's salvation. The Bible says that there were four men in the fire that day, that three of them were tied, bound up in their clothes, and then Nebuchadnezzar saw that there was a fourth individual in there, and it said, and in the translation of looks like a god, it looks like the son of a god, to him, he's just this pagan deity, a pagan man who's just looking in there going, I threw three, and now I see four, and he's got a bright, shiny face, so I don't know what else to say other than I assume that's like a god or an angel or something. What we know about Scripture What we know about the Bible is that Jesus, in the New Testament, as the man, as Jesus Christ, flesh and blood, we actually know that Jesus shows up in the Old Testament several times in what's called a pre-incarnate Christ, okay? So John, I believe it's John 1.1, talks about how in the beginning, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That Word is Jesus, okay? So from the very creation of time, Jesus 
as part, of the, as part of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? It's this crazy kind of understanding of who God is at the same time. He's all three but one, right? At the very beginning of time, Jesus was present. So several times throughout the Old Testament, we see when it says the angel of the Lord, or it'll have a, a, an individual who will come and talk to someone. Several times, it's a pre-incarnate Christ. It's not Jesus in the flesh and blood, but it is the aspect of God presently in this moment. And this is what's happening right now. Jesus himself, the spirit of God, the presence of God comes down in the flames and rescues these men. Now, why is this significant? And this is what I love about the Bible. A lot of people would say, man, the Old Testament, it's cool, but like, it's really hard to read. It doesn't seem to have a lot of, a lot of in, uh, interesting or, or, or relevant topics to our, our topic about Jesus in the, in the New Testament. And that's not true. Because so often in the Old Testament, what we see is an illustration or a metaphor for what Jesus lives out in the New Testament. And we see the same thing here. There are flames that these men are going to be die, death or dying inside of this furnace, and Jesus comes to rescue them and separates them from those flames. That is a metaphor for what Jesus Christ does for each one of us and is available for every single person today. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of the blood, the Bible says, because of the blood that shed on the cross when he died, when he was nailed to a cross, that blood pays the penalty, pays the ransom that was needed for every single soul to ever be able to be connected back you're the creator. And so when we, see, when we see this pre-incarnate Christ individual in the flames rescuing these men, what we see in the New Testament is Jesus doing exactly the same thing for us. For every person in this room today, Jesus separates himself from us and separates us from the flames of separation from God. The Bible tells us that each one of us, if we don't know Jesus, will spend the rest of eternity separated from God. Completely separated. Because, because he paid for us to have forgiveness, to have life, to have a connection with our creator. But if we reject it, he can't, he can't be connected to that sin. And so what we see is that the picture of this beautiful story of these men being rescued by, because of their faith, the same thing happens to us. We are rescued because of our faith in Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. Romans 5.9 says, And since we have been made right in God's sight, by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. I think that's it's incredible. Not only is it a story of, hey, we can learn from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that, like, you know what, let's have faith in the face of all the odds. You know what, like, God can and will save, and that's true. Hey, God's sovereign, and that's true. But more than that, we see the gospel in the Old Testament. We see the good news of Jesus In the Old Testament, that old, boring book, we see Jesus showing up already saying, let me just give you a little taste of what I have to offer you. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And so the big idea of the day is this. In the face of overwhelming odds, trusting in God will always result in salvation. In the face of overwhelming odds, whether it be in your personal life, whether it be in your faith, whether it be in eternity, trusting in God will always result in salvation. One way or the other. There is nothing that can happen to you in this life that if you have faith in God, that will affect the next. You will always have salvation waiting for you. No matter how bad things get, no matter how many mistakes you make, if you trust in Jesus, 
in the end, no matter what happens, you will have salvation. That's the promise of Scripture. It's wonderful. So the real hero of this story is Jesus. I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we look at those guys and we say, wow, I want to be like them. I want to, in the face of what is wrong, stand up for what is right. I want to have the guts in the face of of dire penalties. I think of those men who were beheaded on the beach because of ISIS and their faith and how they would not renounce the name of Jesus. I want faith like that. I want that faith. And I'm working towards it. Jesus, help me to be that man. If it ever calls upon my name that one day that's me, I pray that I have that strength, that you would give it to me. That's the kind of faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. But in the reality, the greatest hero of the story is Jesus. Because not only did he save them, but he painted a picture for what he does for each one of us. I mean, those three men were ultimately powerless. They were at the hands of the mercy of God. And so were we. But Jesus did something about it. I'm thankful for that. But Jesus stole the show. So my question to you today is this. What's your furnace? What's your furnace today? What is it that you're standing up against What's causing you problems or anxiety or stress? What are you afraid of? What is it that's in your life that you know is wrong that God is saying, this is the thing that you need to stand against? What is that thing? God has been putting some things in my life, some things that I have, have, have I think, just kept on a shelf. And he's been, he's been calling me lately to say, Jared, these are things that, that I want you to begin to deal with. Choices I'm making in my personal life. Choices that I'm making in my ministry life. Choices I'm trying to make in my community life and how I interact with people outside of my home. And some things aren't necessarily sinful, but some things are just not healthy or helpful. And I want to be a man that God can use at any moment for his will, for his glory, so that more people can know Jesus. He's been breaking my heart lately for people I see on the streets who don't come to our church. Not because I want seats to be filled, but because every one of these seats represents somebody who's dying and going to be separated from eternity from our Jesus. And it's hard for me. And I see that and I say, okay, God, whatever you want me to do, help me to be like a man who will stand up for what is right. Help me to be a man that's willing to step beyond my own comfort levels, my borders, and to walk out into a place where you, will, you can use me so that other people can know hope and life through Jesus. So my questions to you today are this. Will you do what is right even though it's hard? Will you trust God for your rescue, for whatever it is? Will you trust him? And most importantly, maybe there's someone in the room, or maybe it's just a renewal of this. Will you give Jesus your life so that you can be saved? Everything we talk about here, it's all about Jesus. Everything has got to be about Jesus because he is the one who made it possible for us to find our way back to our creator. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you are... Incredible, incredible. You have rescued us from an eternity of separation. The Bible uses imagery of that separation of fire, of flames. And whether it's a literal sense or a figurative sense, it doesn't matter because separation from you is torment. That's the point. And when I look at the story of these three men in the furnace and how you rescued them, I love the beauty of the picture that you rescue each one of us today. Thank you for it. Would you guys just under your own breath right now, just thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for rescuing me. 
And now, God, we turn our attention to the things in our life that are furnaces, the things that are difficult, the things that we're afraid of, the things that are holding us back. Would you now call those things out to us individually? Give us images in our mind, words, pictures in our mind of what those things are that are holding us back, things that are wrong, things that are sinful, things that we have said before that we've gone along with, but you're saying, no, this is wrong. Show us those things right now. And would you give us the courage and the faith and the resolve to stand up in the face of sin, to stand up under the the face of ridicule or mockery or even consequences or penalties and say, I will do what is right. We cry out to you, God, and we say, will you rescue us? Would you rescue us from from our problems? Would you rescue us from our sin, from our addictions, from our habits? Would you rescue us from the the things that we're afraid of, from the situations that we don't know how we're going to get out of? Would you rescue us like you did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Would you show yourself to be powerful in our situations? Would you show up supernaturally when, when there is no possible material way for it to work out? But in the end, we trust that you are sovereign. Just trust you because we know salvation is coming for us. We give you our lives, Jesus. If there's anybody in the room who wants to begin a relationship with Jesus, just right now, just raise your hand. I just want to see it so I can lead you through a prayer. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. And all we're going to do right now is literally, the Bible just says you just have to confess with your mouth. So just say, Jesus, I believe in you. That's it. Just, I just, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you rose from the dead. You died for me, you rose from the dead. I believe you are who you say you are. And then just say, would you rescue me? Rescue my soul. And the Bible tells us that right now, there is a party in heaven that the angels are rejoicing because another one has been snatched from the flames of eternity. Praise you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let's all stand. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you call Encounter Church Home or if you'd like to partner with us to support the work that God is doing here, you can take advantage of our online giving option. Just go to EncounterGiving.com. Also, stay up to date with us throughout the week by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at EncounterPGH. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.